Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Here we go. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us today uh, for Ask a Berkeley Scientist. Um, and for those in the future, maybe watching this, this video recording, thanks for playing along at home. Um, so this is an event specifically designed to answer some of our everyday science questions. So we have our esteemed panelists here to, to help us through. I uh, am Thomas Mitiga, and I have the honor of moderating these questions. I'll make sure that they are clear, I'll make sure they're not too long, um, and I'll possibly ask some follow-up questions for further clarity. That said, let's get, uh, oh, actually, sorry, we have 10 questions that we've actually pre-selected um, from submissions before this event um, that we'll be addressing first, and then after that, we've made sure to reserve time to address your questions that you've written down and submitted just today. There's a lot of them. There are a lot of them. Salam alaikum, everyone. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10... We did not know each other, and we could not speak to each other, because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA, shame on I believed them when they said they were sleeping on concrete floors. I believed them. Children being separated from their parents in front of an American flag. I believe them. And you can change the entire population of the world, eight billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change, change their, their lives, lives forever. forever. Well, that didn't happen, and here we are. I believe these women. You're wrong. I feel extremely lucky to, to be here with all of you fighting for justice, for equality, for the right for us to equally exist in this country. There were 329 uprisings, 257 cities within four and a half years. And neither Martin nor Fannie had any control over that. We might be headed to the promised land of speaking the truth and finding our external liberty once we internally liberate ourselves. But their children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world, but the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much. And may God bless us. And may God bless us. Um, that said, I'll introduce our panelists um, very briefly, and then they can give a little more of a, a spiel on what they're about. Um, so over at the end, we have Alexis from chemistry, then we have Ella from physics, uh, Corbena from chemistry as well, Steve from astronomy, and finally Daniel from biology. So that said, why don't we go down the line, you can all tell us a little bit about what you do. 
Uh, okay, hi. I'm Daniel Westcott, and I study photosynthesis. So basically how sunlight is converted into new growth. It's this intersection of all sorts of cool disciplines. You've got physics, because you need to understand how cells grow. You've got biology, because there's all sorts of things that can go right or wrong. Chemistry, and how the molecules interact with sunlight. It's just this little nexus where you have to sort of have a broad general overview of all sorts of different disciplines in order to try and put it all together and understand how new cells grow just based on sunlight alone. Hi, I'm Steve Croft, uh, and I'm a researcher in the astronomy department, and the research question that I'm working on right now is, is there intelligent life elsewhere in the universe? Is there life on other planets that's evolved uh, to be like us, to have technology um, that we might be able to detect using our radio telescopes? Uh, so I grew up in England, studied radio astronomy uh, and for my PhD in England, and then I came out here to Berkeley, and I've worked on a number of, of topics in radio astronomy, sort of more conventional astronomy and astrophysics, uh, and now, as my niece says, I'm an alien hunter. <laughs> Hi, I'm Bhavna Vidyapu. Uh, I'm a professor here in chemistry uh, at Cal, and um, my group um, is studying, I would say that overall, our overarching theme or question is how do you move charge uh, without losing energy in the process? And so we look at uh, two primary areas where, where that uh, question plays out. One is in the area of uh, storing uh, renewable energy in fuels, um, so taking basically doing artificial photosynthesis, which is um, sort of trying to uh, uh, replicate that process, but at surfaces uh, and, and, and materials. And then also, how do you uh, use that energy more efficiently? So how do you make materials that uh, you know could end up in your phones or your computers, um, where you can transmit energy and information? Uh, very, very efficiently so that uh, it's, uh, you don't lose uh, the energy uh, that you store in the process. Okay. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Elal Ahma. Uh, I was born and raised in Israel, where I also did my uh, PhD in physics. Uh, right now, uh, like uh, Rachel said, I'm a postdoc here at Berkeley, and I'm studying um, quantum phenomena in magnetic materials. Um, which uh, basically means that in my everyday uh, lab work, I uh, make interesting materials, and then I cool them down to very, very low temperatures, um, and I study various aspects of them, uh, mainly uh, electronic qualities. Um, and the reason for that, or the motivation for that, is um, twofold. One is to understand better uh, magnetism and magnetic phenomena in, in these materials, um, and the other is sort of more uh, applicative to see if we can use these materials afterwards uh, for uh, electronics uh, to be used in uh, everyday life, such as um, uh, magnetic memory devices or your hard drive, uh, and even maybe in the uh, maybe not so far future uh, quantum computers and spintronics devices. Uh, hi, I'm Alexis Schusterman, and uh, I studied as an atmospheric chemist, specifically looking at uh, pollution chemicals produced in urban areas, but also global warming gases. And I was mostly studying how we could use lower cost sensors to detect these chemicals to figure out where they're coming from in situations where maybe a community member wants to be able to monitor those things themselves, or in developing countries where they don't have the resources to purchase this, uh, uh, expensive or research-grade instrumentation. Uh, but now I'm a lecturer in the chemistry department, and mostly I help researchers figure out how to help people learn chemistry better. And Alexis, you can continue.
need to hold on to the mic because the first question is for you. Let's dive right into it. I'm really excited about this one. Why does bleach turn things white? I love this question. <laughs> I love this question. I'm actually going to traverse the stage because I prepared some slides. Sorry. Uh, but I think that you do need some visuals to think about this question. Because the first thing, why does bleach turn things white? Well, why are some things colored at all? It's kind of the implied question there. And so when we're thinking about, let's see, there we go, where color comes from. Some of you might recognize this very famous rock album cover. But uh, what it's really showing you is science, right? Not just extreme rock. And it's showing you that white light, right, when you pass it through a prism, it has all the colors of the rainbow inside it. So when we're seeing the white light from the overhead lights here, it has a little bit of all these different colors combining. So if we see all the colors at once, to our human eye, it actually looks like no color at all. And so when things look white or clear or colorless to us, what's really happening, I'm a chemist, so I have to think there's a test tube full of something, <laughs> is that all of those colors of light are coming from some light source, and all of them are passing through and entering your eye. And so all those colors are there, but because they all got transmitted through the sample, that's my chemistry word, I love having samples of things, uh, are transmitted through the sample, that sample looks white or colorless or clear to you. As opposed to, we could have a different sample that has some kind of different property, right? So when all of those colors in the white light hit the sample, some of them, maybe the blues, the greens, the purples, get absorbed by the sample, they get stopped. They're interacting with the sample, and so instead of moving through, they're hanging out inside the test tube. And so it's the other colors that then pass through to your eyeball. The cooler colors get busy inside the sample, the warmer colors passing through. And so this sample would look probably orangish to you. So the opposite color that is absorbed is observed. Absorbed or and then you can have the exact opposite situation where you have a different sample that has some kind of different properties. And so if the warmer colors are the ones that are busy interacting with the sample, then it's the cooler colors that make it to your eye and the sample would look blue. Yeah? Okay, so that's where color comes from in the first place. And then we're wondering, well, what are these different properties of these samples that makes them able to absorb colored light at all, right? And then what changes what type of colored light it absorbs. And so here I have some examples of a bunch of different uh, chemical compounds that would look colored to your eye. They wouldn't look clear or white or colorless, and I've made them the color that they would look to you. And you don't have to be an expert in figuring out what these drawings mean. These are actually pretty specialized drawings that chemists like to use. But the pattern here that I want to draw your attention to is single, double, single, double, single, double. Right? So in all of these drawings, you have situations where you have two lines and then one line. Two lines and then one line. Two, one, two, one. Single, double, single, double, single, double. These are chemical bonds, and it's that alternation between a single bond and a double bond that makes this molecule capable of absorbing, interacting with, stopping some colored light. Otherwise, all those colors would just flow through, and you would see it white with your eye. Okay, so back to the question. Why does bleach turn things white? Well, let's say you dump a whole bunch of tomato sauce on your white shirt. <laughs> lycopene, this is lycopene, is the thing that makes tomato sauce look red. And yep, we got single, double, single, double, single, double. When you throw bleach on it, what you're really doing is you are adding C 
ClO minus, that's chlorine and oxygen, and some water. There's definitely a bunch of water in bleach. And that chlorine and that H2O in water will react with one of these double bonds, one of the two lines. And you see up top, now we have an OH and a Cl, where there used to be a double line. Now, there are three singles in a row. So that's interrupting your chain of single, double, single, double, single, double. And now you have shorter repetitions of that pattern. And so if the bleach reacts with a couple of different spots, a couple of different double bonds, then you're gonna truncate this pattern to smaller and smaller chunks. And so then, this molecule can no longer absorb the colored light and then make you observe the other colors. Yeah, so the lycopene is still on your shirt. It's still there, <laughs> sorry to say. But now, because it's not absorbing any colors of light, you can't see it anymore. It's still there, but it's invisible. Uh, I had no idea my shirts were still that dirty. <laughs> oh man, that's embarrassing. Um, okay, well, we can move on now. The next question should be for Daniel. Uh, and it is, can cancerous cells be restored to a healthy state, theoretically, or is cancer completely irreversible? Okay, so for this question, we're gonna lean heavily on the word theoretically. Um, so uh, first qualifier is that I'm a plant biologist. That means the cancer that I know about is about plant cancer, which is not real, or at least not analogous to what uh, mammalian cancer is like. However, um, I have, done a good bit of digging on this and I think I can walk through this. Um, okay, so what's cancer in the first place, right? Cancer is uncontrolled growth of a cell. So cells are growing and dividing all the time and they're getting signals from them, basically themselves, they're somewhat biochemically aware. They're like, we've got small molecules or proteins or we can sense whether or not we're close to one another and we grow and then we either divide or we stop growing. Right? So if you have a bed of cells, say in your skin, they grew to a point and then they stopped or else your skin would kind of keep growing and you get some lumpiness, right? Um, if those cells have a problem understanding those signals, if they're close to one another or if they're at a point where they should stop dividing or continue to dividing, they can divide uncontrollably. So cancer is basically uncontrolled growth of a cell, right? So why would a cell go from being really good at this to suddenly being very bad at it, right? It actually isn't a quick progression. So inside of each of your cells is a long bit of instructions called DNA, right? That DNA is prone to getting errors in it. And in your cell, there are billions of cells, right? Sorry, in your body, there's billions of cells and billions of cells being made every day. And every new cell has a copy of your DNA that should be exactly the same as the first cell you ever were, right? So these are being copied and copied and copied and copied. You would expect at some point of the billions of cells that are being made daily to have an error, right? Well, your body has systems for detecting and repairing those errors. Either it will detect an error and say, that's no good, we're gonna fix it, or it will detect an error and say, okay, forget it, you're, you're totally lost to me and I'm just gonna suggest that you kill yourself. So there's this cool word, and I love it, because it's called apoptosis, because it's got a pop in it, right? So when a cell decides that it's no good anymore, it will voluntarily apoptosis. It will kill itself, and it will get out of the way for healthy cells to grow, right? So if errors are happening in DNA all the time and getting repaired, you've got basically a crew of repairmen 
that are coming through and fixing the DNA and making sure that there's a really high fidelity and that it's going to be copied over exactly the same every time. But what happens if you break the repair, uh, the repair system, right? So if there's an error in the DNA that's in charge of telling you the instructions for making the repair system, you then all of a sudden aren't able to repair the DNA whenever you have an error. So there's copies and there's and there's errors and there's a repair system, but if your repair system is breaking, then you have a tendency to have more and more errors build up, right? And one of these days, probability happens, right? So if you're doing billions of cells a day and you have an error in the repair system, then all of a sudden you may have more errors build up. And then you may have an error in the DNA or the instructions that tell the cells to stop growing. So all of a sudden they've got the signal to stop growing, but there's something broken in that system that tells the cells to stop growing and it just decides to go on. And it continues to grow. And it continues to grow and divide. And every time it continues to grow and divide, it makes a new copy of DNA that has that original error. So then mutations or errors build up over time and more and more can happen in a single population of cells. So what can happen is a single event, right? A single error when, it, when DNA is being copied can lead over time to more and more errors building up, right? And if those things happen and, and you have errors that tell the cell not to stop growing, you can have cancerous growth and it can continue. So to the question, is this something that can theoretically be fixed, right? By the time you notice it, in, in practicality, by the time you notice that there's cancer, there's probably a lot of cells that have errors built up. If you have a very early detection system, if you're like, we know right away when there's an error in our DNA repair system or an error in our telling our cells when to stop growing, then maybe we could say, okay, doctor, please, let's try and do some gene therapy using fancy new techniques called gene editing, and we'll try and repair that error in that cell and never let it grow out. So this is our theoretical, right? It's, it's theoretically possible to detect and repair things right away. It's practically impossible, right? Um, but I should tell you there's one other case that is sort of an emerging field of science called epigenetics. Can you guys say epigenetics? Epigenetics. Right, so epi means over. So there's a whole system of control that's over that DNA instructions called epigenetics, so over genetics. And what that can do is like, you have DNA, just because you have the instructions, doesn't actually mean those instructions are ready, right? So my nose cell, hopefully, is not gonna grow a fingernail out of it, right? Because they're the same set of instructions in my finger cell as there are in my nose cell, but they're not all read at the same time. Otherwise, I'd have fingernails coming out of my nose and I don't think I'd be good for the camera, right? So if, for whatever reason, you have changes in that epigenetic control, just like blocking away bits of instructions, and, and those changes are a little bit more reversible. They're more uh, able to be treated with drugs to help change that epigenetic state. So if you've got instructions that say can't be read or locked away, then you, then you maybe aren't able to stop growth, right? But if you unlock those instructions, then you can potentially revert the cell back to a, a, a state where it's not gonna be growing and proliferating uncontrolled. This is still uh, sort of an emerging field and it's still in that theoretically realm because I think there's a lot that's I don't understand and there's probably a lot that the field doesn't understand about how these these things interact together on that you're saying that um, we set of uh, we have a set of instructions uh, before any cancer comes to be right such that it reverses the effect of the cancer once it starts happening so you would want to put those instructions back to the original state 
Uh, right? So even even someone who has cancer, the majority of their cells are doing a great job yeah. re reproducing yeah. it. And if you can get that set of instructions that's correct mm -hmm. back into that population of cells that's incorrect, you could potentially revert them back to a normal state. All right, very cool. Uh, so you can hand the mic over to Clobena now. Um, we have a question for him, some feedback. Um, his question is, why can't you charge batteries that are not rechargeable? And why do batteries become weak with time? I assume those are the rechargeable ones. Um, okay, uh, yeah, so first of all, let's uh, discuss what exactly is going on in a battery. Okay, so in a battery, if you've ever taken a battery out of a phone or a computer, although they're not letting us do that with many computers now, it's all um, sort of locked away in there, you'll see there's a plus and a minus, right, uh, on, your, on your battery. And so what batteries are basically doing is that they're allowing a chemical reaction to take place, but they're partitioning the two things that are reacting. And they're partitioning them in such a way that the... What does partition mean? Uh, sort of separating them in space. So there are some materials that are, or some substances that are going to be near that positive sign in your battery, and there are some other substances inside the battery that are going to be closer to the negative side. And so those uh, substances would normally like to react with the, uh, on the positive side, would like to react with the negative side. If you mix them together, they would probably get very, very warm, um, maybe even, you know, give off some light. There's some spontaneity to uh, the reaction between those two substances. But what you do in a battery is you kind of separate them in space, so you partition them, so that they can only react if you allow electricity to flow from positive to negative. Okay, and so that is the discharge process. That's when you put your battery in your phone, if it's charged, you put it in your phone and you, al you allow these two things to react, but um, they can only react when electricity flows from one side to the other. And so it's sort of a, an indirect way of letting these things react. Okay, and now this reaction in uh, a battery that is rechargeable, this reaction between, let's say, the substances at A and at B, or positive and negative, it needs to be reversible. In other words, it needs to be able to go in the opposite direction as well. It needs to be able to get back to what you started with. So in a chemical reaction that's not reversible, you can take one material to another, but you can't go back from this new material to what you had before. But in reversible reactions, you can go back and forth just by, in this case, let's say driving the electricity in the opposite direction. Okay, so um, the main reason why some batteries are not rechargeable is number one, they, uh, cannot undergo a reversible reaction. The stuff they're made of is not compatible with this reversibility constraint, okay? What you end up making cannot go back uh, to what you started uh, with before. The second thing is that even if some of the materials can <coughs> undergo this reversible change, it, they may not be able to do so efficiently. So there may be some other unwanted process that takes place that basically siphons off some of the energy over time or makes it really, really dangerous to try to run the reaction in the opposite direction. Um, and so for instance, um, some uh, older uh, alkaline uh, batteries um, back in the day, technically they, the reactions could be reversed, but if you did that, the battery had a chance of exploding uh, because it would release hydrogen, which is flammable 
and, um, and so that was usually not a good idea. Nowadays, most of the batteries in your phones and computers are lithium-ion batteries, which actually won the Nobel Prize um, just a few uh, weeks ago, was it? Or very recently. Um, and those uh, batteries are based on the principle of shuttling lithium ions from one side, from let's say positive to negative and negative to positive. And so you have these lithium ions that are shuttling back and forth between uh, something that is really good at holding the lithium ions on one side um, when the battery is charged and something that's really good at holding the lithium ions on the other side when the battery uh, is, it has been discharged. And so the lithium ions go back and forth and as they go back and forth inside the battery, you get electricity moving through your device. Now, what can happen over time to get to the second part of the question is that these, um, uh, this reaction, if the, even if it is reversible and it is, it can be efficient, you don't always have your, the components of your battery returning to the exact physical state that they started from. So they may return to the same chemical state, so they may be made up of the same sort of connection or connectivity of atoms uh, in the material, but maybe they are now not smooth anymore. Maybe they're a little bit rough or filamentous, right? And so over time, uh, when you uh, have these cycles and you need, you know, to, you want to charge your battery hundreds or thousands of times, or recharge it hundreds and thousands of times, over time, these little bits at the end of these filamentous structures can break off. And once they've broken off from the main uh, sort of mass of the substance uh, in the battery, they can reconnect. And so you've now lost some of that bit of the battery. It's still inside the battery, but it's no longer connected. And so over time, you just lose the active mass, the active material uh, that is in your battery. And so inevitably, the battery is going to lose what we call capacity. Uh, over time. And so this is one of the most active areas of research in battery technologies. How do you uh, maintain the capacity of a battery? How do you get rid of these filamentous structures that are uh, called dendrites? And also, how do you prevent them? So there's another side to this. Besides the loss in capacity, these filamentous structures can grow and grow and grow. Eventually, they can, you know, poke a hole from one, you know, from negative to positive, And then suddenly you have all that heat and energy that I talked about at the beginning, this spontaneous reaction, you can have it uh, just taking place without the constraint of having electricity uh, moving through uh, the, your device, and then your battery can explode. And so there's a lot of research uh, in trying to control how these filamentous, and prevent these filamentous structures from happening because they're unsafe and you lose uh, capacity. So I hope that answered. Yeah, thank you very much, Kobana. You can pass the mic over to Ella for the next question. Um, so this is a very physics-y question, um, one that I wish to solve myself. Um, so why why does my six-pound cat sound so loud when she runs through the house? And can she modulate this when she hunts, please? Okay. Um, that is actually a physics question. Um, so embarrassingly, I had to Google it, and it turns out that a six-pound cat is actually a very small cat. Um, but small cats can still uh, make a lot of, of noise. Um, and to actually answer this question, um, I would like to start by explaining uh, what is sound? How come I'm moving my mouth over here and you're hearing me sort of over there? So what, what is it that, that is happening um, around us that allows you to hear me? So 
Sound waves are actually uh, modulations or vibrations in, uh, in a material. So it doesn't have to be air. If you've ever tried to speak underwater, you, can, you, you know that you can actually hear it. Um, so, so sound waves are actually vibrations uh, in a material. And in our case, if I sort of ignore the, the microphone right now, um, these vibrations are in the air. So as I move my mouth, I'm modulating uh, sort of very um, the, the air pressure in a very in a very local uh, area, and so when I move my mouth, the air molecules they go like this. I will they they go like this. They get closer in, in certain parts and further away from, uh, at different parts, and this sort of getting closer and moving away and getting closer and moving away is advancing towards you, um, and it advances towards. Uh, pretty much everywhere, but also your ears. And in your ears, your eardrum uh, vibrates because of that differences uh, in air pressure, and your brain translates this uh, into sound. Um, but I can also do something which much less uh, sort of uh, finesse, let's say, and I can go like this on the table. And this also creates a sound because my hand is uh, uh, pushing against the table very, uh, very fast and very, or not so very strong because I didn't want to spill all the water. <laughs> um, and then the table vibrates, and uh, because the table vibrates, it vibrates the air around that, and the air around that vibrates the uh, the next uh, sort of layer of air, and then all these layers uh, of air vibrate and finally get to your ears. And so, uh, if your uh, six-ton cat uh, is running. Uh, is jumping from very high places, or is uh, really bouncing uh, on your floor, um, they create, uh, or she creates, uh, vibrations in the, in the floor and in the air um, that can make her sound uh, very loud. Um, and then the, the, other, um, sort of the other aspect of, of how a small cat can be very loud is uh, also dependent on uh, where you are. So um, if you're in a very small place, um, these vibrations in the air can get reflected uh, from the walls. So one, one is that they can get reflected from the walls, and the other is that if you, if you speak like this, right, if you speak into your cupped hand, one of the reasons that you are heard louder is because all these uh, modulations in air pressure have only one way to go. They can't uh, go all over the room, and so you are sort of focusing uh, your sound waves uh, to that direction. Um, and so if your uh, cat runs through the hallway and you're at the end of that hallway, uh, then you can uh, hear very, uh, sort of very loudly. Um, and can she modulate this uh, when she hunts? Uh, I think she can. Uh, cats are known to be, uh, uh, she can uh, sort of walk very softly or try to not uh, move as fast. I think uh, as the nature of cats, she just doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is how cats can be very loud. Just, just a sort of you're saying that it's a matter of how hard the cat is hitting the ground. How hard a cat is hitting the ground. If you have, like, if you have a carpet that would vibrate less or in a less ordered way, or if you have hardwood floors, uh, or if you, uh, if you're in a small room, that would uh, make the waves come back to you from the walls many times and that would uh, sort of have a, an added effect of being extra loud. Can I ask a question uh, on this? Is it quick? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm thinking that like on a concrete floor, 
Concrete wouldn't give much, so you wouldn't get much sound, is that right, as opposed to wood? Uh, I, I think concrete is a bit uh, softer in that sense, um, and also it has a lot of mass, so it can sort of absorb most of the vibrations. Uh, I'm not an expert in acoustics, but I think that's it. I, I do believe concrete does absorb sound pretty well. Uh, depends on the concrete. Um, yes, yeah, so why don't we keep going on? Thank you for the question. Um, hand the mic over to Steve, the next one. Dark matter. Always an exciting matter. Um, so, we know that dark matter makes up a large part of all of the matter in the Milky Way. And since stars are made of interstellar gas and dust, which is driven together by gravity, and dark matter also seems to respond to gravity somehow, um, do astronomers think that there is dark matter in stars? So I think we want to, first of all, uh, get in a little bit more to what we think dark matter is. Um, so. Uh, there are four fundamental forces of nature. Uh, gravity is one that's mentioned in, in this question here, and we all know gravity keeps us on the surface of the Earth. Uh, gravity is an interaction that takes place between any two things with mass. Uh, hence to be that the Earth is very massive and very nearby, and so we feel its gravitational pull more than we feel the pull of the table or these water bottles or whatever, but they, they are all interacting with each other through gravitational interaction because they have mass. Uh, we've already heard a little bit in, in some of these answers about electricity and about uh, electromagnetic forces, and uh, that's another one of the fundamental forces of nature, electromagnetism, uh, which binds electrons to the atomic nucleus, which binds uh, atoms together in molecules, and really is responsible for sort of the structure of the world that we see around us on a daily basis. There's also the strong and weak nuclear forces, which we're not maybe as familiar with, because these are the forces that hold uh, the atomic nucleus together and that um, essentially govern radioactive decay. Um, but not all, all kinds of particles have to feel, have to experience all of these kinds of forces. You're probably familiar with particles that are electrically neutral and so wouldn't be affected by an electric field or a magnetic field. Uh, and similarly, um, there may be particles electric and magnetic field, I don't know that everyone knows what those are. Well, so, I mean, if you think of magnets, basically, uh, you know, magnets attract each other, or, you know, we heard, again, about sort of electric charges uh, and batteries and that kind of thing. Um, and so, uh, without getting into too much detail uh, on this, essentially, you know, you can feel the force from a magnet. You try pulling two magnets apart, you feel the force that's pulling them together. But if there's a material, for example, that's not magnetic, um, then it's not going to feel that magnetic force. And similarly, um, things that are electrically charged are not going to feel um, the, the force from an electric field. And that answers that, that question a little bit. This is kind of like the feeling of a force. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, you know, we could hypothesize, we could kind of dream up um, other kinds of particles and say, well, maybe there are particles that don't feel um, the, the electromagnetic force at all, that essentially, uh, you know, wouldn't interact even with light uh, if light were to fall on them, um, that maybe wouldn't feel some of these other fundamental forces, but maybe they do feel the gravitational force. They're still influenced by gravity. And you might think this is just sort of, you know, physicists coming up with things to sort of fill, um, you know, hours when they're, they're bored at work. Um, but we actually do see evidence of dark matter uh, in astrophysical observations. And so we know that it's not um, normal matter made of protons, neutrons, and electrons, because we actually have measurements of the amount of protons uh, and neutrons that were around shortly after the Big Bang. Essentially, we can look at uh, both the composition of the universe now, so we can look at how much hydrogen and helium and heavier elements there are, uh, and sort of measure that today, and, and then 
uh, work back to what the conditions were within just a few seconds after the Big Bang. Um, we can also uh, look at the imprint that was left in the sort of baby pictures of the Big Bang that we have from about 400,000 years after the Big Bang itself, called the Cosmic Microwave Background, where we see these little fluctuations essentially everywhere we look in the sky, there's sort of this glow, which is the afterglow of the Big Bang. And there's bits of that glow that are a little bit hotter than others, and there's bits of that glow that are a little bit cooler than others, and these correspond to, uh, in the early universe, places where there was a bit more stuff and a bit less stuff, sort of variations in, in density, variations in how much stuff there were. And then we can put those into supercomputers and we can run them forward in time and actually simulate the formation of the galaxies that we see and of the structures, the, the clusters of galaxies, the big kind of um, you know, layout of, of galaxies in our local universe. And what we find is that we actually need um, some invisible dark matter that uh, only experiences gravity in order to explain how we get from these initial little ripples uh, to what we have today in galaxies. So that's sort of one thing that, that is evidence that dark matter may be out there. You can also look at how galaxies themselves rotate and you find that if you kind of add up all of the stuff that you see in the galaxy, all of the, the, the visible light that's coming from stars, that again you need to uh, have some extra mass there that doesn't uh, experience this electromagnetic interaction to explain how the galaxies rotate. Uh, and you also, um, you know, really need, uh, if you look at how the universe is expanding over time, uh, and we can do that by looking at um, uh, distant supernovae, these are stars that have exploded uh, billions of years ago, and you see how they're moving, and you're probably all familiar with the idea that the universe is expanding. But again, we need to have this, you know, extra bit of dark matter, and it's actually not a bit, it turns out to be quite a lot. It's about five times more matter than the normal matter that, that's around us here in order to explain these things. And so there's really kind of, there's, there's three areas. One is the early universe, one is the expanding universe, uh, and then, um, you know, one is the galaxy rotation that, that we see uh, locally that are all pointing to the presence of dark matter uh, on large scales spread out throughout the cosmos. So this isn't just something that we, we, we made up. And actually, uh, you know, there's some physicists here at, at Berkeley that are actually trying to do dark matter detection. Uh, how would you detect something that doesn't interact electromagnetically? Well, maybe it interacts a little bit. So there's, you know, there's some ideas that maybe it feels sort of some of these forces just a tiny little bit and that we might see every once in a while one of these dark matter particles interact. And uh, we've had some talks on this in the, the Science of Cal lecture series. I see Rachel smiling because she worked for a while uh, for Bernard Satellite who's doing some of these direct dark matter detection experiments um, deep in mines to see if, you know, if they just pass through the earth basically um, without even seeing that it's there, then, um, uh, you know, that maybe they're not interacting at all, but maybe every once in a while, you know, one in, in maybe trillions of these particles might, might interact with normal matter and you might be able to see a signature of that. So that's kind of the background, I guess, to get to, to the question here, do we think there's dark matter in the sun? Um, Just a real quick sort of yes no version of the answering that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's probably a little bit in the sun, but uh, I, I want to just very briefly um, sort of talk about how stars form, right? How do we get a star like the sun uh, to form in the first place? And they form from, you know, bits of gas that were a little bit over dense, uh, that had, you know, there was more stuff in one place than, than in some other place, and it collapses under its own gravity. Um, but it's actually pretty difficult to get things um, to just collapse under gravity. It's the reason why the Earth doesn't fall into the sun. The Earth is happily in orbit going around the sun and has been for billions of years, and it's not spiraling in. It's not sort of being sucked in by the sun's gravity. 
And in fact, to get something that is sort of in a stable orbit like that, that's going around to actually kind of collapse in on itself, then you need some way of getting rid of energy. And if you've seen uh, you know, movies of the Apollo spacecraft coming back from the moon, for example, or you know, the space shuttle, or um, you know, spacecraft that are in orbit around the Earth re-entering the Earth, it's really kind of dramatic, you know, they're hitting the atmosphere, there's a lot of friction, the atmosphere is heating up and they're, they're dissipating, they're losing some of this energy that they have in order to kind of get back down onto the ground. And this is a property, you know, that, that ordinary matter has, if you were to rub your hands together, you feel this friction, the, the heat between your hands, uh, they're rubbing together, and that's the dissipation of energy, which is actually required to form a star. And so, um, you know, getting back to, to what I've said so far, uh, you may be sort of putting two and two together and realizing here, okay, ordinary matter can do this because it interacts with itself. Ordinary matter can have friction and can sort of heat up and dissipate that energy, which can then lead eventually to a clump of gas collapsing to form a star. Dark matter can't do that. It doesn't have the ability to, you know, interact electromagnetically, and so it can't kind of cool down enough to actually compress. Um, so there's probably not very much of it on small scales. Essentially, there are kind of over densities. There's clumps like you know planet Earth and like the Sun, uh, and, and other sort of very dense um, things. You know, this water bottle doesn't have very much dark matter in it. Um, but on large scales, uh, you know, the dark matter is kind of more um, nebulous. It's more spread out basically because it doesn't have this ability to to collapse. So I think that's my yeah. So it's kind of like dark matter can't like collect itself yeah. into a single object in the way that regular matter that forms Earth and the Sun can. Exactly. Um, but it's spread out everywhere. So yep. Trivially, there is trivially there is some dark matter in a star. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's keep it rolling. You can pass the mic over to Daniel for the next question, um, which is a very tough, uh, very tough question. It seems. How much does a calorie weigh? Uh, <laughs> nothing. So for this, I'm actually going to draw. Uh, sorry. So I just wanted to briefly put a couple of words on the board. Uh, this is capital C. That equals. Oh, sorry, this is lowercase C. You would think that calorie with the lowercase C equals one calorie. But this calorie with an uppercase C equals 1,000 calories. This is the worst nomenclature on the planet. Nobody would have chosen this. But so this is what food people talk about when they talk about calories. So every calorie in food is actually multiplied by what scientists would call a calorie, which is one. So if you're on a 2,000 calorie diet, you need to just multiply that by a, by a, a thousand, right? To actually get what how many real calories you need to die. Um, but so. As long as you don't mix them up. Yeah. <laughs> so a, a, a calorie itself is a measurement of energy, right? And we can talk about how much energy you can have in one place, right? And you can talk about how you know concentrated energy or energy density can be different. So you can have different you know calories in a certain space, right? So if you have one gram of material, that could have one calorie, or it could have a million calories, right? So I've got some examples for you, and maybe I can poll the audience on who thinks what has more calories. One gram of Cheetos versus <laughs> one gram of macadamia nuts. So raise your hand if you think Cheetos have more calories per gram than macadamia nuts. So this is a Cheetos crowd, other crowd, macadamia nuts. 
Right, so the, the uh, majority is correct in this case. Macadamia nuts actually have as much energy per gram as butter does. Right? They're really, really energy dense. So similar to olive oil, um, that has a similar density to, uh, to both macadamia nuts and butter. Okay, beef versus the Impossible Burger. So hold your hand up if you think beef has more calories than the Impossible Burger. Okay, the Impossible Burger has more calories. All right, so good, nobody's right. They're almost exactly the same, right? So, and this was by design, and the Impossible was like, well, let's just make the nutrition facts look the same, right? So, so they really do have almost the exact same amount of calories per gram, right? Um, so kale has a very low amount of calories, which is like 493 calories per gram, as opposed to the butter, which is 7,000 or something. So, right, the reason why kale has a lot less calories per gram is because a lot of that actual weight is water weight, right? And it's not, and, and it's carbohydrates. It's just not as energy dense as what you would get in like butter, right? Um, okay, <laughs> gasoline. So if, if our butter and our olive oil has 7,000 calories per gram, gasoline has 10,000 calories per gram. So we're getting up to something that you can actually put in a car and burn, which is why people are interested in, in biofuels or algal biofuels because that, that oil that you get from algae is like 7,000 calories per gram. And that's getting sort of within range of the energy density of gasoline, which makes people think it's a feasible fuel for driving cars, right? Um, it, it takes some money to get that actually to be cost competitive in a world of fracking, it doesn't actually make sense. But, okay, here's my, here's my big calorie per gram. A nuclear bomb has 3.8 times 10 to the ninth calories per gram. So that's 3.8 billion calories per gram, right? And I don't know uh, any more than that, but just, so as far as energy density, you can't really put a number on what a calorie weighs, you can just have how many calories in a, in a unit space. And how do you know? Uh, can I just say, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so if you said uh, atomic bomb, uh, I would like to share uh, maybe anecdotally how, how, you, how do you actually measure these uh, numbers? Um, and the way you measure this, it's called a bomb calorimeter. Um, and so like Daniel said, um, uh, I will be talking about uh, small calorie, um, and a small calorie is defined as how much energy, as the, the amount of energy that you need uh, to heat up one gram of water, which is about a quarter teaspoon, um, by one degree centigrade. Uh, and, and this is really a, a measure of, of energy. So how do you measure this? Um, you have what is called a bomb calorimeter, where you essentially uh, ignite or burn that material that you want to see the energy density of, um, and you see, and that whole thing is uh, inside a water tank, and you measure the temperature of the water, and by that you can realize how much calories were there. So um, if you think of things like uh, oil that burn very well and very efficiently, they do have a very high caloric content. Or alcoholic drink that burn spectacularly, they also have a very high caloric content. Uh, so if you ever need to guess how many calories are in uh, kale versus uh, olive oil, you can think of, well, does it burn very well? Uh, and if it does, then it has a higher caloric content than, than something that, that doesn't. All right, so the next question is for Alexis. Uh, and I'm gonna try to keep these questions a little bit faster, these answers a little bit faster this time. Um, so, yeah, uh, the question is when you use soap to wash something oily, where does the oil go, and does it turn into something else? 
answer this very quickly because I am a college teacher and everybody wants to leave class early. So <laughs> the first thing that we got to start with is if you don't use soap, what happens, right? If you just have oily hands and you're just trying to wash them off in the water, it doesn't work very well because oil and water don't like to hang out with each other, right? You see this all the time in your salad dressing bottle, um, or maybe you did a specific experiment just for this. If you pour oil and water into the same container, they separate into two layers. And the reason for that, on a chemical molecular level, is the molecules are really different, yeah? So H2O, water, lots of H's, lots of, lots of O's. And it turns out that chemicals are very clicky. They like to hang out with people who are like themselves. And the O's and the H's are like, yes, you look like me, I'll hang out with you. Oil looks really different. Um, this is, I think, motor oil. It's just C's and H's. And that's not something that water likes to hang out with. It says, you go hang out with your people, I'll hang out with my people. And so, if you want to wash oil off of your hands with water, you need some kind of peace offering here that can interact with both. And that's what soap is. So soap looks like this. It has one end that water likes to hang out with, some O's. It's got some O's, water's like, okay, I can get with that. It has another end that looks like the oil. And so it can form this bridge, yeah? It's got a water end and an oily end. And so when you smoosh your hands around, right, you do good hand washing, so you really smoosh them under the water, what happens is in order to interact with both things as much as possible, the soap molecules actually organize themselves around the droplet of oil like this, with all of their oil tails pointing in towards the oil and all of their water heads pointing out around towards the water. And so this breaks the oil up. It lets it kind of get mixed in with the water. And so when you wash the soap off your hands, it carries all the oil down the drain with it. It's still oil. Nothing chemically has changed about it but it is now mixed in with, dissolved in the water, and can actually get off your hands and go down the drain. Now we are up to our alien question that we were discussing. So for our alien expert, it's been reported that uh, scientists believe they will identify the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence in just a few years. Um, if they do, how will we know it still exists, uh, since this evidence probably came from very far back in the future? Okay, so I'm not going to go so far as to say we think that we'll have success within a few years. We're, we're looking very hard right now, so I'm part of a project called Breakthrough Listen, which was launched in 2015. And uh, this has really dramatically expanded the number of telescopes that we're using, the number of stars that we're surveying, uh, the amount of data that we're taking is really kind of amazingly huge. Um, so I can't tell you what our chances of success are, but I can tell you that they're better than they were before 2015 when the project that we're working on launched. But I'm not going to claim, you know, we're going to make a detection, we're, we're looking very hard. Um, as to the question of will it still exist, well actually a lot of the targets that we're observing for Breakthrough Listen are relatively nearby, uh, in, in astronomical terms at least. I mean, they're still basically trillions of miles away at the nearest. Uh, the nearest stars are a few light years away. Um, but actually most of the sample that we're looking at of, of nearby stars with Breakthrough Listen uh, is within just a few hundred light years. And so um, if civilizations last for longer than 100 years, uh, you know, the conversation will be pretty slow if we pick something up from them and then we have to send a reply back. And if they're 10 light years away, that's sort of 20 years between, uh, you know, hello, how are you? I I'm fine, how are you? So it's gonna be a little bit stilted. Um, but it's maybe not as bad as, as the questioner thinks it might be. Uh, why does plastic last so long in the environment? And why is it different than stuff that breaks down like wood or metal? Great question. Okay, so um, fortunately, 
the time this question has come up, you've seen a lot of chemical structures uh, from Alexis. Uh, and so you've seen that um, a lot of uh, substances have carbon-carbon bonds in them, and sometimes they're alternating with double bonds and things like that. So plastic is uh, what we call a polymer. So it means that it is a really, really large molecule, larger than any of the molecules you've seen, but it's made up of smaller fragments um, of molecules that have been stitched together. Okay, and in that regard, it is very, very similar to wood, um, which is made up of a polymer uh, called cellulose. Um, and uh, you know, we have Daniel here, who's a plant biologist, so he can tell you all about why cellulose is in plants. But basically, these are all polymers. And the short answer to this question is just to say, plastics have been around for much, much uh, less time than wood has been around. And so there are microorganisms that are able to break down cellulose um, that haven't evolved the capability yet um, to break down plastic. Um, but they both things have very, very long chains of carbon-carbon bonds, which are usually very difficult to break down. But there are um, microbes that are able to do this because they have the enzymes, they have the right machinery in the cell to break these uh, bonds. But they need to have uh, be able to recognize uh, these long, these large molecules, and and to be able to, uh, to in order to break them down. And so, since plastic has really only been around for what maybe I don't know less than 100 years, you'd say, um, whereas cellulose and wood has been around for, you know, um, I don't know, however many, you know, as far back as, when was the first plant, oh. or first plant cell? Reaching far back into the evolutionary yeah. tree, so like a billion. Yeah, like a billion years. So there, there are, there are, there are, yeah, there are organisms that have evolved the ability to break these uh, wood down, whereas um, uh, they uh, haven't developed that ability yet for plastic. Uh, as for metal, metal, you know, metal oxidizes, it, it rusts, like iron rusts, um, and so that's a different chemical process, um, but um, uh, metals are, sort of have a very different structure than uh, what you've seen so far, um, but they are more prone to just getting, reacting with oxygen and, make, and rusting effectively, and then that's how they break down. Um, so. Uh, so that's why plastic lasts so long. Um, the, the one way that plastic can be broken down is um, basically UV, uh, light from the sun, but that it, it takes a really long time. It's a very slow process, and you need to be able to. The sunlight needs to shine on the plastic for it to happen. So if the plastic is buried, it's not going to happen, um, and so that's why plastic stays in the environment for so long. Um, so. Um, uh, so the question is, can you can you speed up the evolution of a microbe that could break down plastics? And the answer to that is yes. There's this whole field of biology called directed evolution, where you, you put uh, small microorganisms under pressure. You give them basically uh, nothing else to eat, but potentially the carbon in that, in that plastic, and over time they all die. But maybe one of them learns how to break down the plastic a little bit and has access to carbon, and Yes, but I don't know this field very well. So this is a strategy that people do use called directed evolution, and I think that, that could probably be what, how you would get to that. Very cool. Uh, we have another question. Yeah. So does that mean that plastic would like break down completely and completely boil away again? Can you repeat the question back for me? Uh, I didn't hear the last one. 
you said, does that mean the plastic would break down more easily in the equatorial areas because there's more sun? Yes, in theory, if, if you expose plastic to light, it would break down faster. The question is whether the plastic would actually get exposed and then the, the collateral damage. Goes. So you, know, you, you could say, okay, throw all the plastic in the ocean if it floats and the sun hits it, but then it's gonna really you know, harm the plant animals. And then you know, what, are, uh, what are some of the side effects of, of It's a great question. Um, there are, I should say, another way to, um, you know, there's a lot of effort in developing biodegradable plastics. So plastics that um, some of these microbes would recognize and would be able to break down, um, or, or other sort of chemical reactions more easily take place that break them down. And so those are biodeg biodegradable plastics. So that's another sort of chemistry approach to the problem of plastics. But we already have a lot of plastics in the environment and we need to find a way to get rid of them and maybe some of the strategies that Daniel talked about could be applicable. Is how come some fridge magnets don't stick to the fridge if you try to put them on the other side? <laughs> cool. So this is a, a great question because I actually only learned this uh, a few years ago. Uh, one of my friends of mine and the lab I did my PhD, he came with like these two. Um, so I think some of the fridge magnets are the the thinner ones, sort of not like the big chunks of, of uh, magnetic metal that you have that that cling to your fridge, but the uh, sort of thinner ones uh, with the pictures, with um, uh, whatever, uh, and and he came with two of these, and he's like, well, look, uh, uh, these two magnets, if I try to slide them uh, on each other, they don't slide freely. They sort of make these uh, jumps. Um, and when we started uh, to think why why this happened, uh, we actually figured out uh, the answer to this. Um, so to to start, let me. Um, let me just explain first how come magnets stick to the fridge uh, in the first place. Uh, so if you have a big chunk of, uh, like if you have a big uh, bar magnet or if you have two of them, uh, you know that uh, the opposite poles attract and the uh, similar poles uh, repel each other. And it's as if you have uh, a positive uh, mag magnetic charge on one side and a negative magnetic charge uh, on the other side. And like, uh, like in electric charges, uh, opposites attract, uh, and the same charges repel each other. So if I have this, uh, like a bar magnet, I have a positive side and a negative side, um, and these would uh, repel, uh, and these would attract. Um, and so, but your magnet, but your, sorry, but your fridge uh, is not a magnet. Um, and the answer for that is that uh, your magnet actually also has uh, a magnetic field. So these charges, uh, they, uh, they have a field which we kind of said already uh, is sort of a measure of how strong the force is. Uh, so if you have a, very, a magnet with a very uh, strong magnetic field, you would feel that uh, repulsion or attraction from, from very, very far away. Uh, but that field is also uh, acting on the metal on your, in your fridge that your fridge is made of and sort of temporarily uh, makes that uh, a magnet on its own. So if you uh, bring a magnet close to a fridge, uh, that area of the fridge, because of the magnetic field, uh, becomes magnetic. And then again, you have two magnets uh, with opposite poles and they attract each other. Uh, and this is why uh, an ordinary magnet would, would stick to the fridge. So uh, in these uh, thinner magnets, instead of having all the poles, uh, sort of all the magnets or all the magnetic charges aligned in the same direction so that all the poles are either sort of pointing at the fridge or, or pointing away from the fridge, 
Um, the orientation is, is a bit uh, different and is a bit complicated. Yeah, okay. So instead of having everything, all the arrows um, aligned in the same way, so imagine if I, if I draw an arrow from the negative magnetic pole to the positive magnetic pole. So instead of all the arrows pointing in the same direction, they have this very weird um, uh, sort of grid that is, if you notice, it's rotating. So it's up, left, down, right, up, left, down, right. And it's actually rotating. And if you add up all the magnetic fields from all these different parts, it comes out that to one side, in this case, the upper, uh, the upper part of the, of the magnet, uh, the field is very, very strong. Uh, but because you can't get anything uh, for free and there's a certain amount of energy uh, in the magnet, um, this is because of conservation of energy. Uh, this means that on the other side, the magnetic field is very, very weak. So naturally, you want to put the picture on the other side so that it can stick to your fridge uh, on that side. And so if you flip it and try, you try to put the picture side onto the fridge, uh, because the magnetic field is, is very, very weak, uh, it's not strong enough to uh, sort of magnetize your fridge uh, and stick to that. Um, and so the answer to uh, what my uh, friend asked a few years ago is that if you take, if you take two of these fridge magnets and you try to uh, run them across each other, um, if you do it in the right direction, what you get is that every once in a while, you're trying to attach, uh, you're trying to put a blue part over a red part, which is great because these are opposites and they attract. But if you move it a little bit, you would align the blue parts and the red parts, and then these would repel. And what actually happens is that the, the two magnets repel each other, and you get this jump uh, to where they actually uh, track. This is a, actually a, if you have two of these magnets at home, you should, you should try it. It's a very fun uh, experiment. Oh, and, and this is, before I forget, uh, uh, to give credit where credit is due, this is called the Halbach Relay, uh, after the person who uh, invented it or found it. That were submitted before this event. Um, so now we'll get to our audience questions. And actually, have one. Yeah, we have a whole lot of them. Um, but there's one that we we got uh, that we, we like already, which is for Daniel. All right, cool. Actually, biology questions here too. <laughs> well, I'm going to start with this one because uh, you're excited about this one. Um, so, how did the first cell or bacteria come to be? And how did it become everything we see today? And answer it quickly, please. Yeah. <laughs> One minute or less. Yeah. So there's a. I'm gonna have to start before actually the first cell. Like, th let's imagine there's a soup, or the the primordial soup, where all the basic building blocks of life are, and all these things are being freely exchanged. At some point. Some organizational structure happened where there was an inside and an outside, and that's our first cell. So there's something that has an inside and something that has an outside, and never the two shall meet again, right? Um, from that point, let's just say that that's where we're starting, and let's also just, for the sake of this time, let's say that there's all this, who knows what happened before that, but at this point, this first cell looks you know, similar to the cells that we would see today, like a bacteria or a prokaryote. So it's got DNA, it's got the ability to make more DNA, and it's got the ability to make proteins and fats, right? So at that point, you've got one thing, and like I was telling you before with cancer, when DNA is made, there's a chance that some of it gets uh, made wrong, or incorrectly, or has some sort of error. Most of the time, that error does nothing. Some of the time, that error is bad, and some of the time, that error might be good. 
right? Good in the sense that it makes that organism live a little bit better in the environment that it's at. So this is sort of the concept of uh, the molecular basis of evolution, right? So as that cell grows, divides, makes DNA, grows, divides, makes DNA, right? You might have more and more errors happening over billions of years of evolutionary time to where different, you know, uh, adaptations to that environment allow a certain cell or population of cells to grow better, or at least in, in certain little niches, um, and then. Over time, you would get cellular organization. So, so for example, um, a lot of algae can grow. And I, I'm an animal biologist. Sorry, <laughs> this is my go-to metaphor. A lot of algae can grow all, all alone, just fine, right? But if they cling, cling together in a group, they can grow together as like a colony and have emergent properties that allow them to be a little bit better at growing where they are than they would be if they were just by themselves as their own like little edible treat for whatever that comes along. So. If you project this kind of phenomenon where there's variations in the DNA that causes uh, a little bit of difference in fitness, project that out over billions of years and over all the different environmental niches that there are uh, on the planet, you can start to imagine how cellular organization might have occurred. Right? That's probably as far as I sh should go. <laughs> it seems like some of the questions that we got from the audience are really hard and uh, require a little bit of looking up answers, so I'm going to give my analysis a little bit more time by answering the question myself. Um, I was given how many feet is a T-Rex? Um, now, I'm a physicist. Yeah. Is the, right, the only answer I can really give you is two. Um, there are two feet on a T-Rex. Um, but uh, the fact that, that I have been given, or that I can see, is that they're, they're usually roughly 40 feet long, which is about the length of a bus. Um, and also, as a fun fact, they are very heavy. Uh, so 9,900 pounds is, I guess, a very small one, but they can weigh as much as 31,000 pounds, um, which is a lot of buses. Um, seeing as, or actually, no, I guess a bus is actually about the same size. Only 40,000 pounds. Did you have the number for the meat? Yeah, it's like 2,000. Calories per gram. Calories per gram. gram. A kilogram is roughly two pounds. Um, so let's divide this whole thing. Fifteen thousand pounds, and then multiply. What was it? What was about it? two thousand. About two thousand. All right. So uh, sorry. It's uh, fifteen thousand kilograms. Uh, two thousand calories per kilogram per gram per gram. So that would be. Uh, 2,000, that's 2 million calories per kilogram, and then multiply that by 15,000, so we're back to 30,000. Uh, 30 billion. 30 billion, sorry. 30 billion. So 30 billion calories in a T-Rex. <laughs> that could be just a while, right? How much does someone eat in a week? <laughs> uh, all right, so who's really excited about their question? So one question was, uh, what is berkelium and or where is it found? Uh, so it is a radioactive element. It is basically made only in uh, nuclear reactors, in a type of, of nuclear reactor. Um, and only about one gram of it has ever been, been made in the US. So um, it was discovered here. Uh, and uh, yeah. And uh, the other question was, uh, what is H3O used for? And apparently, uh, and, and why is it being sold for $1,000 per bottle? What um, is sort of the, the point of
So this one took me a little bit um, because, so I'm not sure why anybody is selling a bottle of H3O. Uh, H2O is water. Um, what happens uh, in acid solutions or slightly acidic solutions, so you'll find this in like lemon juice, right? In your, in, uh, in your like Coke or Pepsi, a lot of sodas have, have um, are, are acidic. Um, what else in vinegar? Uh, is that you basically get an H plus, um, so that's a hydrogen atom that has lost its electron. It, that gets attached to water to form H3O plus. So basically every solution of anything that is acidic contains H3O plus. And I'm not entirely sure of the sort of business um, of, of selling bottles of H3O. Sounds uh, a little... Yeah, yeah, all those words uh, to me. So um, I wouldn't spend a thousand dollars on, uh, but yeah, on a bottle of H3O. But I don't have enough information to comment on that. But the chemistry of that H3O plus is uh, the hydrated form of, of, of H plus, um, uh, and uh, it is in every acidic solution from your vinegar to lemon juice to your Coke or Pepsi. You buy some vinegar. Yeah, <laughs> for less than a thousand. Um, okay, um, I hope I'm reading this correctly. I learned in science that if you touch something uh, or somebody, uh, you don't actually touch them because uh, the atoms of the touched surface uh, move uh, move away. Um, and why do we? And then how do we feel? Um, I guess uh, how do we feel that? Um, and so. Uh, this this is actually correct, and it and it maybe uh, goes to the philosophical questions of, of what it means to, to touch something. Um, so this is correct that um, so everything every matter that that is not dark matter uh, is uh, is made of uh, or maybe dark matter is, uh, is made out of, of atoms, um, and atoms have uh, a positively charged uh, nucleus which is made of uh, protons and, and neutrons. And then electrons, negative uh, electrons that are sort of uh, flying around or rotating around uh, that positively charged nucleus. And so that atom, if nothing uh, has happened to it, is uh, neutrally charged. But these electrons, this uh, cloud of negatively charged electrons, uh, if they meet uh, another atom, uh, the first thing two atoms see when they meet is their uh, electronic uh, clouds. Uh, and so if I uh, put my finger on this table, then the very last atom in my finger, or the very last uh, uh, sort of barrier in my finger is, is actually these, uh, electro this electronic cloud, um, and, and, it touching, and it's touching the electronic cloud uh, of that uh, tablecloth. And so uh, these electrons, uh, like I've said before, uh, they are both. They, they are all charged uh, negatively, and so they they repel each other. And so the reason I can't put my finger, one of the reasons I can't put my finger in, uh, through the table, is that the electrons in my finger and the electrons in the table they, they repel each other. Uh, but this repulsion, uh, it creates a sort of force, right? It, it creates a sort of uh, pressure in my finger, um, and then this is what you feel when you when you think of of touching, really. So so. Uh, in a sense, you're not actually touching the table, uh, but then it really depends on what your definition of, of touch uh, really is. So uh, somebody wants to know, I guess I was talking about gravity before, um, how does gravity work and why? <laughs> 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 this is also sort of, uh, you know, we can do an 
entire seminar on this, but um, <laughs> briefly, uh, you know, you're probably all familiar with um, Einstein's, th there's two theories, the theory of special relativity and the theory of general relativity, and this was sort of a revolution in our understanding um, from kind of Newton's view of the world, and this is actually the view that I was sort of talking about before, where you have a couple of things with mass, and any two things with mass, there's going to be a force between them that depends on how big those masses are and how far apart they are. Um, but Einstein essentially kind of thought about this in a different way, and uh, the, the way that he came up with was to unify space and time. You may have heard of this idea of space-time, so we have three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. And uh, he came up with this idea that, that mass itself is actually warping space-time around it. And again, this sounds like maybe something, you know, some crazy physicist came up with, uh, you know, uh, uh, that has no experimental evidence. But actually there was an experiment that was done uh, during a solar eclipse in the 1920s by a physicist called Eddington. Uh, and they looked at the positions of the stars on the sky, which we know very well. And then, uh, of course, the sun, uh, normally when it's up during the daytime, means that you can't see stars that are nearby the sun. But then in special circumstances where the moon is blocking out the sun's light during the solar eclipse, you can actually measure the positions of these stars that appear close to the sun on the sky. And when they did this experiment, they found that the stars did not appear exactly where they would have done if the sun was not there. When the sun moved in front of them, the star positions changed slightly, and actually that change in position was exactly what was predicted by, by Einstein's theories uh, for the mass of the sun warping space, space and time basically around it, so that even though the light is traveling in straight lines, it's actually reaching us. It's kind of like a lens, and this is called gravitational lensing. We actually see this. There's some amazing pictures I'd encourage you if you haven't seen these, go and Google Hubble Space Telescope gravitational lens where you see the gravity of entire clusters of galaxies that are making multiple images of distant background objects and really distorting them into these kind of fantastic shapes. Again, um, very much what's predicted by, uh, by, um, by, by general relativity, but also, you know, again, if you come up with the amount of mass that you need there, surprise. Turns out you need some dark matter to explain <laughs> So go, go, go look that up when you get home. Um, I was just on my phone because I was fascinated by this $100 H3O. There, there $1,000. Well, I saw a $100 bargain on Amazon. <laughs> don't buy whatever this thing is. I, don't, I still couldn't figure it out, but I did find the product didn't exist. Uh, but the question I would like to actually answer is what is fire or a flame, which is a great question. Um, and it actually goes back to all of our calorie discussion, which is that you have something that you're burning, right? And burning we call combustion, which is a reaction between some fuel, maybe it's a Cheeto, maybe it's T-Rex, um, <laughs> with oxygen. Um, these things don't just happen, you know, if you're just putting a Cheeto sitting there in the oxygen in the room around us, right? It doesn't catch fire. You need some kind of spark, something to kick it into the combustion reaction. But once you get that spark, that combustion reaction releases a lot of energy um, along with it. So it's changing your Cheeto or your T-Rex or your gasoline or whatever you're burning into carbon dioxide. That's kind of one of our nemeses of the 21st century is how much carbon dioxide we're producing. Um, but along with carbon dioxide, there's also pieces of the Cheeto that don't burn all the way. So they don't go all the way to carbon dioxide. If you remember all those carbons in the oil molecule I showed you, some of them stay attached to one another. And so that's what makes smoke or soot, is the little chunks of carbon that are still hanging out together instead of being split apart from one another. And if, um, if those chunks have extra energy in them from this combustion process, very high energy, 
um, then that extra energy can get released as light. So really what you're seeing when you see a flame is all these sooty molecules floating around and they're glowing because they have all this extra energy they need to get rid of. So it's like a little floating ball of soot that's letting off its energy as light. And that's what makes your, uh, that's what makes your flame or your fire. I was given a question that I really like. Uh, why can we see? Um, so to answer that, I want to uh, have you imagine for a second that you rub your head with a balloon. So I still have hair, so I can rub my head with a balloon, and then I pull the balloon up. What happens? Can anyone tell me? Just shout it out. What happens? Yeah, yeah my hair would stand up if I had a balloon here. Now what if I pull the balloon over the, this side? The hair would go this way, right? If I pull it this side, it goes this way, right? Um, now, some of you probably already know why that happens. Uh, that's because of something that uh, Ella brought up earlier, that positive and negative charges attract each other, right? Um, there's, I think, positive charges in the balloon, negative charges in your hair, or something like that. Um, but the point is uh, that if I bring the balloon to one side and then the other side, my hair will follow. Um, the same thing is happening between your eye and whatever you're looking at. So the balloon takes the role, or the thing that I'm looking at, say the chair in front of me, takes the role of the balloon, and then the retina in my eye have a bunch of charges in it um, that are then pulled back and forth by the charges in, my, in the thing that I'm looking at, the chair. So everything you see is really a pull back and forth between charges in my eye, and, uh, your eyes, uh, and whatever you're looking at. And that, that like pull back and forth is what we call light. Okay, I should make a disclaimer that, whoop. So I'm currently actually, uh, so I'm Katie, I do science at Cal. I organize these things, but I also have a degree in zoology, which is actually not from Berkeley, so I can't really say I'm a Berkeley scientist, but I have this really great question, so I want to answer it. So uh, the question is, why do ants have antenna to communicate, or antennae? So ants, as you probably all know from having them in your house, they like to live in huge groups, right? They're, they're, you don't usually see like one ant, you usually see like a horde of ants. So ants are these very um, social insects. There's lots of different kinds of social insects, right? There's, there's termites, there's honeybees, and there's ants, and they're all sort of related to each other. So if you're an animal, and you're kind of a big animal and you're kind of a relatively complicated animal, you probably want to interact with other animals, whether it's animals that you are looking to be friends with and you know live a nice life with and make more animals of your same kind, or if you are looking to eat something, right? So you want to eat another animal, you gotta find that other animal. So there's also some questions about why do we have eyes and why maybe why we have brains. So one of the things is that as an animal, we have to go out and, and interact with the world and we need to have ways of sensing the world. So ants have antennas, they're sense organs. We have lots of sense organs, right? So we have eyes, we have skin that can touch and feel, we have a nose that can smell, we have ears that can pick up sound waves. So insects do a lot and you know, lots of insects, actually most of them, have some kind of antenna, some of them can sense sort of sound waves, air, air movement with them, but a lot of them use these antenna to sense chemicals in the environment, right? So they're basically sort of either smelling or tasting, kind of depending on how you want to describe that. Smell and taste are kind of related. They're interacting with 
chemicals in the environment. So ants have these antennae that can sense chemicals in the environment. And so they, they almost always uh, communicate with each other by producing chemicals themselves. So that's how they recognize their own nest mates or they can recognize sort of other kinds of ants. So there's lots of interesting, cool ant behavior where ants like go to war and they beat up other ant colonies, they'll kidnap other ants and they'll bring them back to the nest and they'll make them farm fungi and you know, there's all kinds of cool things. So, so ant antenna, ant antenna, it's not a real word. <laughs> Antennas are for uh, sensing the environment through uh, chemicals. They can also actually, and I just looked this up because I wanted to be shoot, like know this for sure. They also apparently relatively recently figured out that ants can um, sort of uh, produce chemicals through the antenna, and so they actually kind of are not just picking up uh, information from the environment, they're also kind of using it to communicate with other ants around them. So they also do this thing where they kind of drag their scent glands in their abdomen on the ground to leave little trails. You know, have you ever seen them? They all follow each other. That's what they do. They, they leave a chemical trail and then they use their antenna to follow it. But they're actually also using their antennas to make a, a message to each other. So when they walk up to each other, they kind of do it. And not really my thing. But anyway, so that's why ants have antennas. Uh, thanks, thanks again to our panelists. Uh, and, and maybe to me, if you feel like it, uh, and to all of our AV staff and everyone who's helped set this up. Yeah, I can't speak for everybody, but um, even if we're finished formally, I can answer some questions individually if, you, if you're interested. Um, and on the topic of ants, if you guys, you can see a line of ants, run your finger in between where they are on the table. What you do is you you break that scent trail. If they're sniffing the ant that went before it and you run your stinky finger in between that trail, they'll come up to where you ran it and they'll be really confused for a second. And they'll try and walk around and figure out a way around it. So you can just see this in real life, how they're communicating through the, the stinks that they leave along the way. I, I can take a quick one here. Um, somebody says it's been 40 years and no one has landed on the moon. Why? This seems to defy all scientific uh, advancement. Uh, so I think, you know, uh, money and politics basically is, is the reason behind this. There's no sort of scientific reason why we haven't gone back. If we could do it with 1960s technology where the computer was about, uh, you know, as powerful as, you know, a cell phone from a few years back, uh, then we could certainly do it with the technology that we have today. Um, but really the things that were driving those landings on the moon uh, in the 1960s were our politics and specifically for the US competing against the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, and then the cost of sending stuff up into space is still really large, uh, essentially because it's like you take a journey in your car and then you throw away your car when you get to, to your destination and that's kind of stupid, right? Um, so there's folks like uh, SpaceX, like Elon Musk, who are working to make more of this hardware reusable where you can actually land the rocket and then refuel it and then, then go again. So you're, you're just paying for the cost of fuel per launch. And I think this is really kind of going to open up, you know, some of these new technologies um, are going to open up cheaper uh, space exploration and I think there's sort of commercial reasons why we want to go to the moon as well as scientific reasons. Um, NASA's trying to land people on the moon actually kind of with a pretty aggressive schedule in the next few years. Um, the other sort of political thing about this is that it seems like you switch sort of presidential administrations and the, the new president comes in and decides, okay, we're actually going to go somewhere else. Um, you know, we're going to go to Mars first or we're going to go to an asteroid or, you know, the, the, it keeps on sort of 
getting redirected, and I'm sure kind of folks at NASA are kind of scratching their head, like, wait a minute, you know, we were just building this program, and now you're telling us do something else. Uh, but I think you know the the, um, the the winds are sort of blowing in the right direction. That I think we are going to start seeing you know, a lot more activity in the space sector and a lot more um, human exploration beyond Earth orbit. Um, there's been about 500 people who have been up into space, uh, and only. Uh, 24 of them have been in orbit around the moon, and only 12 of them have landed on the surface. And actually, they were all white men as well, which is something that NASA wants to, to fix um, going forward as well. They have kind of something that represents humanity uh, a little better in, in, as we go out and explore it. I just wanted to say we got a lot of really good questions, which we obviously have run out of time to answer. So if you have not been to our website, which is scienceacal.berkeley.edu, uh, our hope and, and goal is to take some of these questions that we got, which we maybe aren't able to answer today, we don't have the right people, because there's definitely people for that, and we'll have a little section on our website for the Ask the Berkeley Scientist where we'll try to answer questions as we get in, and we'll hopefully be able to do this sort of event again in the future, maybe on Cal Day, maybe some other time. So if you enjoyed it, uh, I hope we'll see you back, and you can still, we, our form is for sending questions is still up, and we'll try to send them out to different people and get them answered and put them up for you. So, thank you. To those who tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, Tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbow. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody going to hit as hard as life. Ask not. Yes, we can. What your country can do for you. I have a dream. Ask what you can do for your country. My poor little children. Yes, we can. One day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. It ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you be. They keep moving forward. How much you can take it. They keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Welcome to Public Access America. Yes, we can. Now on Instagram and SoundCloud. I wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad. On Twitter. Podcast, the Stitcher Smart Radio app, Audible, and Spotify. Yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making.
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.